0: David Smith of MotorsportsAnalytics.com. On today's episode, you come here for Advanced Stats. We are delivering Advanced Stats with a deep dive into the Xfinity series, including a look at the drivers being overlooked when it comes to some performance and a preview of the weekend in Richmond complete with everything you'll want to know when trying to predict how the race on Saturday night will play out. But first, as always, we start with a little fun. This is episode 12 of Positive Regression. This, David, is the Ryan Newman edition of Positive Regression. Normally, we go a little older with our driver picks. But if you think about it, Ryan Newman has started in that 12 car 17 years ago already. He beat out a driver named Jimmy Johnson for Rookie of the Year in 2002. And then he goes and follows it up with an 8-win season in 2003. David, back then, I think of that 12 car. I think of just raw speed. I think of watching him in qualifying single-handedly making qualifying entertaining with the poles and speeds he would get. He truly was the rocket man back then.
1: He was. Actually, I I had a friend who came to NASCAR uh, late in his life. 2002 was his first year watching it on a regular basis, and he didn't want to pick an established driver to root for. So no to Jeff Gordon, no to Tony Stewart. It was between Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Newman, and it was because of Newman's performance that he chose to go in his direction Probably one of the worst decisions he's made in his life, but <laughs> no, he missed out on a lot of wins there. But you, you bring up something interesting. Ryan Newman, it's, it's almost a tale of two different careers in his age 23, 24 and 25 seasons. Those were the first of his career, all in the 12 car. Uh, they were curiously his three best, uh, when it comes to production and equal equipment rating. Uh, Ryan Newman's 2003 season, in which he won eight times and registered a 3.458 peer, easily the best season of his career. That's the only season in which he surpassed 3.0 on the peer radar gun. A- after those three years, things fell off. His career P. Roa heading into the 2019 season was plus .484. That is slightly better than the career of Kurt Busch better by some distance than Martin Truex and Clint Boyer. But knowing that, knowing how the rest of his career played out, knowing that he had one aberration of a season, what comes to mind for you? When you, you see a driver have one good year or across any sport, uh, an athlete just pop for one season, what do you think about
0: it's odd because it really takes time to give you perspective on something like this, right? I mean, the year after, or when Ryan Newman wins eight races in one year, you, you think, oh my God, this is going to be every year, right? Or you you have big, high expectations. And now we get to, you know, where it is now. And I think that that accounts for nearly half of his career wins, right? Came in that one year. Now that we have the, the value of perspective. And uh, I always try to, you know, Compare it to other sports. And I think about the NBA. So let's say Derrick Rose in the NBA. He won the MVP at 23 years old. I believe the youngest player to ever win it. At 23, you're thinking, oh, my God, this is Hall of Fame career. All this great stuff's about to happen to him. And and then because of injury, you look back now and you see where his production went, where uh, his career went, and the career went downhill. And you can attribute that to injury. Then I go to Major League Baseball. For those that don't remember, in the 1990s, there was a slugger named Brady Anderson. Brady Anderson, if you look at his home run totals, he had seasons of 16 home runs, 16 home runs, and then in 1996, he hit 50 home runs. And then after that, he had 18 home runs and 18 home runs. So you look back on that 50, and then you're thinking, oh my God, this guy's going to have a uh, the back half of the 90s is just going to be filled with home runs. And then his production just went and dropped down. Now, again, in hindsight, I think there are some people that may think that possibly, you know, steroids or cheating were involved, although that was never proven. But, you know, in the NBA, Derrick Rose example, you have injury. In the MLB example, you have suspicions, at least, or the era of steroids and cheating. You know, I don't think of injury in terms, you know, Ryan Newman and his career or where it went. And and I certainly don't think of, you know, performance enhancers. So it, it makes me wonder where that production went. How how does it drop off a cliff all of a sudden? Or where does that one year come from? And I can't find that one answer of why it was there one year and why it wasn't the other, even though we have the perspective of time.
1: One thing you should know about me, Alan, I've read an alarming number of books about Lance Armstrong. Because of this, I know that whenever he saw a fellow rider exceed his typical performance, he naturally grew skeptical and told his teammates and team staff that it's not normal. The insinuation here being that, of course, during the height of the doping era in cycling, he thought a rider was now dabbling in some dark arts. I'm in in agreement with you. This is not injury-related. This is not... Uh, performance-enhancing, uh, drug-related. But uh, Ryan Newman's 2003 season, in which he won eight times and, and registered his high peer, when compared to the other seasons in his career, is not normal. Now, I'm a proponent of production and equal equipment rating. That should come as no surprise. I created it after all. But while Pier is able to handicap excellent equipment in what I feel to be a satisfactory manner, it cannot possibly identify excellence achieved through illegal means. (laughs) It is only with time that I can look on something and believe it to be not normal. All of those fuel mileage wins that season they baffled everyone, and kudos to those on the Pinsky number twelve team: Matt Borland, Mike Nelson, all of those folks for pulling a fast one on the rest of the Cup series that season. But man, did Newman fail to live up to expectations created by that single year. There might have been some chicanery going on in in, in the twelve bid. That that's entirely possible. Consider this: I actually did an exercise because I knew we were going to have this conversation, but. I mentioned his, uh, his career P. Roa, plus 0.484. With the 2003 season omitted, it drops to plus 0.374, and huzzah, that's now uh, worse than Kurt Busch, Martin Truex, and Clint Boyer. Stands to reason those three drivers seem better by the eye test. His P/R/O/A through his first three seasons, was plus 1.867. That is better than every single active driver currently in the Cup Series. That is better than Mark Martin. That is better than Tony Stewart. And that is better than Jeff Gordon. So we were led to believe that this was the coming of a generational superstar, only to find out that, well, maybe something was going on underneath the hood.
0: It uh, sounds like a, f- a fun thing to look back on, and maybe ask some questions of one day if uh, when people if people ever wanted to start. I don't know, revealing the secrets of the two thousand three season because it does stand out when you look at the win totals and just look out in general. I mean, an eight win season for anyone is, is just historic um, and something to look back and memorable. I guess is what I should say. You know, eight wins how it stands out I was trying to think of other examples. I mean there was a year Casey kane a few years later in 2006 he had six wins that ended up being a third of his career victories came in one season in 2006. It, can we compare those two is that a fair comparison for for kane and Newman if we're if we're examining newman in that eight win season the way we are is it fair to look at other years where we see big numbers and don't end up seeing them again like Casey kane in 2006?
1: Well, he never won more than two outside of that year, so just in terms of win totals, that that is a fair comparison. But here's where it differs. That was not the best single season peer of his career. Uh, that actually came in 2011. It was a two point333 rating. Uh, Alan, quick guess as to who he was driving for that year. Was it Red Bull? It was red. Wow. Air. Yes. It was, it was Kane's purgatory year where he was just biding his time waiting to join Hendrick. Turns out that was the best season of his career. Wow. Um, it, so th- that year was an aberration in regards to win total, but not totally abnormal from a production standpoint. His first three years in cup, according to Peer, did not serve as his most productive three year stretch. That belongs to 2010 through 2012, which were his age 30 through 32 seasons. He recorded three straight years of 2.0 peer or higher, the only point in his career where he did that.
0: Interesting stuff, and uh, I don't. And lately, you know, I was looking for examples for just glaringly large wind totals. Um, I don't know, if again, if it's fair to put uh, other people on this list, but Martin Truex a few years ago. Remember, I mean, having the career he did, and then uh, an eight-win season in a championship a few years ago. I don't think we have the perspective of time quite yet because he followed that up with four wins, member of the big three, if you will, last season. But, uh, you know, give Martin Truex a few more years. Uh, I wonder if we're going to be looking back at that eight-win mark that he put up a few years ago and, and wondering, uh, like, wow, where did that come from?
1: Yeah, and perhaps there's some recency bias when you bring that up, but I feel like it's just well known in the NASCAR community how good that furniture row racing team was. They, they were the shooting star, uh, that, that uh, apparently were not meant to last, but that team had its ducks in a row. They were excellent regardless of racetrack and they had the foresight to make a clinic out of the moderate intermediate racetracks, which during the season was the track that decided the championship and I think they took advantage of a lot of things. The rules, the fact that they were a single car team in a multi-car era. So all of their their money, that was not a poor team. That was a very rich team. But they allocated all of their resources into, into one car. Truex benefited from all of that. I think we know that now, but you're right. I'm curious as to how the benefit of time will change our perspective on that season
0: positive regression episode number 12, dedicated to Ryan Newman. And I must say that the term Rocketman, the nickname Rocketman, I worked at WSOC, which is the ABC affiliate here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Rocketman was uh, coined by the legendary local sports anchor, Harold Johnson, who way back when nicknamed uh, Ryan Newman the Rocketman. And believe it or not, it's stuck. So a uh, little anecdote there for you on Ryan Newman's career, who is doing uh, seemingly well in raising the profile of the six car over at Roush Racing this year. So uh past and present, we're still talking about Ryan Newman. All right, moving on to the Xfinity series, David, because seven races into the season for the Xfinity cars, uh you're doing a lot of hard work and getting those advanced stats out there. So let's take a look at them, uh, at some of the stuff we are seeing and maybe more importantly for the listeners, what, maybe we aren't seeing and we should be looking at. Uh David, give us your assessment of the Xfinity Series now that we are seven races into its season.
1: Right. Well, on motorsportsanalytics.com right now, Xfinity Series driver stats are posted. So that's peer, that's passing numbers, that's restarting numbers. Uh I do want to look at some of the drivers that are a little bit off the beaten path. So not Christopher Bell, Cole Custer, Tyler Reddick. We've discussed them. They're having fantastic starts to the 2019 season, but... For me, there are three drivers that pop on the spreadsheet. One of them is Austin Sendrick. Now, it's ingrained in those in the American workforce to not root on your boss's kid when they come into the company, and that consensus feeling has seeped into NASCAR. I get the sense Austin Dillon won't ever be well-liked among the fan base. Austin Sendrick is not Austin Dillon. Uh, For one, he's much taller, but he is the son of Penske boss Tim Sendrick, Going to make this prediction now. Austin Cendrick will never lead NASCAR in merchandise sales. Uh, that does not mean he isn't interesting, though. Uh, despite a high crash frequency through seven races, he ranks 10th in Xfinity Series peer as a 20-year-old. And he has a positive passing surplus uh, and tops everyone with a minimum of 10 attempts. And this includes Kyle Busch in preferred groove restart retention a 94% rate wow. for a 21 position gain on 17 attempts. He's also an above average restarter from the non-preferred groove with a 56% retention rate.
0: But put that 94% in perspective. I mean, I look at your website, Motorsports Analytics, a lot. I look at the numbers. 94 is really high.
1: Yeah, and, and, and probably not sustainable over the course of a 33 race Xfinity series season. But look, for a 20 year old, and keep in mind when you aren't a top tier number one consensus prospect, you're really just trying to demonstrate what are the good things you can do that could convey at the next level. And certainly restarts in the era of stage racing convey in the cup series. Um, So he's off to a tremendous start. You know, Alan, we've never actually had a driver like him enter NASCAR. He cross-trained in Formula Cars and Rallycross, which, look, the stereotype on Rallycross is that it's where drivers go when they can't hack it in a more important series. That's not 100% the case, I'm sure, but it doesn't pertain to Sendrick, who used Rallycross as a stepping stone. That different nurturing... I I want to see what comes of that. We know he's already a good road course racer. He's potentially a favorite for the Xfinity road course races this year, but hoping at this young age, some of all this learning can translate to results on ovals in the Xfinity series. Next driver, uh Ross Chastain, this year was supposed to have been Chastain's reward for a terrific three-race stint with Chip Ganassi racing last season. That plan evaporated. He's back with JD Motorsports, and he's already addressed the only thing that I personally questioned about his 2018 season, uh, and that's restarts. He was only a quality restarter last season while in Ganassi Equipment. His retention rate rose from 65% to 88% in the preferred groove, and from 29%, that's very bad, to 44% in the non-preferred groove. He was a good restarter in good equipment, so-so restarter in so-so equipment. This year, though, he is a good restarter in so-so equipment. So far, 83% retention from the preferred groove and 56% retention from the non-preferred groove. That is a revelatory improvement for a driver who many view already had his breakout. So while things didn't come together as they probably should have, he is still finding a way to make his mark on a series and demonstrating a, an ability to improve, which could convey the ability to grow at the next level.
0: I have a theory. Um, go for it. Practice by practice. I mean, attempts. We are lauding Ross Chastain because he has raced in every damn race so far this season. And that guarantees you a certain number of restarts in this stage era. And I, I have to at least imagine, I know I, I don't have the, quite the analysis that you do, David, but I have to at least imagine that no matter what the vehicle, that the more practice you have at something, this is why I think Kyle Busch is so damn good, the more laps or the more attempts, the more practice you have at something, the better you will get. I think we are seeing the benefit of Ross racing all these
1: races no matter what the equipment He is practicing Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory to a T. But when you think about it, outside of Kyle Busch, Ross Chastain's the only guy trying to compete in every single race this year. He should be applauded for that. I mean, he's getting away with it where, where Kyle Busch can't. But, hey, look, if the rules are allowing him to take advantage, he is certainly doing that. And to varying degrees, He has been effective in all three series, and that's actually an idea for a future episode where we can unpack what Chastain is doing across Cup and Trucks in addition to what he's already done in the Xfinity series. Reminds me of
0: a few years ago, you pointed out Ryan Blaney never had one real um, series, you know, when he was coming up, but he had a lot of starts, whether it be truck Xfinity or cup. I think you calculated he had about 34 to 38 starts over the course of a season. And those are important to a young driver and even someone as established as Ross. I think all the starts really do end up helping you for a driver looking to improve no matter what the level.
1: Yeah, it's true. Blaney had an exhaustive regimen. I, I thought Team Tim Penske did a fantastic job putting him in the Brad Keselowski truck, putting him in their Xfinity car, putting him in the Wood Brothers Cup car, just to get him seat time, get him prepared because they can't afford to run a full season of one thing. So why not have your own schedule? You don't you don't have to be beholden to uh, a championship. You don't have to fall under a certain banner in order to improve. Blaney did that I mean Ross Chastain I mean he he could theoretically be collecting points in all three series if that were legal per the letter, but thus far he's getting more seat time than his peers and it's showing. Uh my third driver is Ryan Sieg. Sieg drives for his family team and they made a big investment in themselves during this offseason purchasing old Richard Childress racing cars and hiring uh, Shane Wilson, former Richard Childress Racing Crew Chief, to oversee those old Richard Childress Racing cars. So improvement in quality was expected. I don't know that it was expected that they would move to 14th in the central speed rankings up from 24th last year. That is a significantly faster race car than Sieg has ever had at his disposal. But Sieg has done some improving himself. He ranks fourth in peer after this first seven-race stretch. Uh, during the span, he has already doubled his 2018 top 10 finish total from two to four, and he's knocked off 10 positions, which is crazy but makes sense considering the central speed jump, off of his average finish, uh, which now stands at 9.1 after Bristol. He ranked 10th last year in Pier among series regulars, so he was not he was never bad, but he was not as bad as many probably believed he was. However, his passing numbers uh lacked a lot last year, and they've seen an uptick in 2019. His surplus passing value last season was minus 2.33%, This season, it's in the black, plus 4.53. So he is now scoring passes in his favor. I'd say for you, Mr. Narrative, Ryan Sieg might be one of the year's best feel-good stories.
0: Yeah, as always. And it seems like he's been that—you know, he can't outrun the narrative, though, of being with the small family team. You know, he was in the playoff, I believe, a few years ago. And then last year, by his standard and if you're making the playoff, by his standard— last year was a down year, but now the reinvestment we're seeing that uptick again. And what what I think you're really good at pointing out are, are the drivers who are outperforming and may not be, you know, running in the top three, but showing their abilities behind the wheel despite some of the equipment issues. And Ryan C certainly fits that definition.
1: Yeah, there is talent all across the fields, uh, in the top three series, you just gotta know where to look. You can't just be blinded, uh, by the speed of someone's car. There are drivers, there are crew chiefs doing plenty of good things, and I'm, I'm happy that we have a podcast that allows us to put a spotlight on them. And, and while I have you, who's one driver that's caught your eye, uh, so far this year?
0: Well, I mean, I'll just point out two quick, I, you know, Michael Annette started this season with, with the win at Daytona. The restrictor plate win automatically put him in the playoff. Him and crew chief Travis Mack, they've showed up, man. I mean, they have their worst finish of the year is 13th in seven races. Their worst finish of the year is 13th. So kudos. I'll give a little clap, a little kudos to the one car for maintaining that. Cause I'll fully admit I was not necessarily a Michael Annette believer. I didn't believe he would do much after Daytona, just given the results we've seen in the past. And they have, uh, stepped it up and kept up that performance. The other I'm interested in, in just. I don't know how you may evaluate where he stands is Noah Gregson. He comes in as a rookie, which can bring its own uh, issues, of course, you know, the, the learning curve and all that. But he's also stepping into the championship ride with the championship crew chief over at Junior Motorsports and Dave Ellens. But you also look back and remember that that was kind of a surprise championship last year. It, uh, you know, Tyler Reddick kind of came out of nowhere and ends up beating Christopher Bell for the title. So am I placing too many high expectations, David, on what that nine team, what, what I th- should be thinking of them as a championship caliber team? Uh, so I'm kind of all over the place where I don't know how to evaluate Noah Gregson's season so far.
1: I don't know how to evaluate him either, but as for the, as for the number nine team, two years ago, that was the car William Byron looked like a superstar in and Dave Ellens was the same career chief. It was the same program. I don't know that a championship expectation is too lofty. I mean, it's going to be tough to outrun the likes of Christopher Bell. And as we've seen, Richard Childress Racing appears like a completely different team than it was a year ago. So there is some very heavy competition. But as for Gragson, peer, he's the third most productive rookie driver after Justin Haley and John Hunter Nemechek. He's the third least efficient passer in the series. After Josh Balicki and Brandon Brown, he hasn't crashed at all. So that's something he ranks as the fifth best non-preferred groove restarter with a 59% rate. He's an 80% restarter from the preferred groove. So there are some good and bad. Uh, the questions that you have, I seem to also have them. I don't really know uh what to make of Gragson. I've never really understood the popular infatuation with him. He's not a top-of-the-line, top-tier prospect, but he's a fringe guy, and he's young enough, he's only 20, where if he does some things now or stays in the Xfinity series for a couple of years and develops, there's a lot of time for him to have a lot of success at the next level if he turns that corner, but... Like a young driver, I mean, you have to adjust your expectations. But there are holes in his racing repertoire. But there are some things that he's doing good. The restart number against uh, the toughest competition he's ever seen to date is uplifting. That's you know that that is a a, a positive direction.
0: Good stuff. Always good to uh, look at the Xfinity series and those up and coming prospects, and then uh, never too early for a deep dive. So, but let's move on to the Cup side as we move on to Richmond for a Saturday night race. David, I want to brag just a little bit, uh, last week at Bristol because we told you, we told you here on positive regression. We gave that, that, that great stat about, uh, the lane re- the restarts and, uh, which lanes are the preferred one and just how bad the inside lane was. And for the second week in a row, David, I was, I was watching the race differently. At, at Texas, it was all about the green flag pit cycles. At, at Bristol, it was watching those restarts to see if anybody on the inside line can retain. And it's not, I don't think I had the exact measurement, but I can tell you by watching just anecdotally, the only two drivers who were able to maintain their position on the inside lane on that front row, you know, starting second all day were Kyle Busch and Kurt Busch and they ended up finishing one, two. I'm not saying it's a correlation, but that's what I was watching and paying attention to last week in Bristol. Now that we look toward Richmond, maybe you can give us a few secrets about what to look for or how this race plays out in Richmond.
1: You know that I was paying attention to at Bristol, the fact that I don't think Clint Boyer is a positive regression listener, but I'll let that slide. Um, no. For Richmond, Kyle Busch swept in 2018. He returns this year with the fastest car in the series, and he has a career-best pass efficiency output. Uh, as much as the NASCAR fan base is tired of hearing about Kyle Busch, there's no getting around that he's the driver with the bullseye on his back this weekend. For whatever reason, probably to avoid a reverse jinx, he doesn't see himself as a championship contender. He's pointing to the trio of Penske cars. We have come to expect all three Penske cars, Brad Keselowski, Joey Logano, and Ryan Blaney, to be fast. Uh, I don't think Richmond will be an exception. They rank inside the top five for central speed all of them have showcased a proclivity for short track racing. So they they will be heard from. Restarts. The inside groove is best. Uh, as a matter of fact, cars on the inside of row one retained on all 12 restarts across both races in 2018. However, uh, for the rest of the field, expect a lot more parity than we saw last week at Bristol. Uh, the retention parity between the two grooves could draw close to 20%, lending itself to good restarters. If you're a good restarter, you probably could have success. For example, last year, Martin Truex was able to score 100% retention across both grooves during the spring race. The outside line is not ideal, but it's not totally a momentum killer. So I don't know that lane assignment will play as big of a factor uh, as it did in Bristol, it, it shouldn't be a storyline, at least if everything holds true to what we've seen in previous years. As for pit strategy, Alan, there's none, really. Uh, some intrepid crew chief might stay out on a caution flag stop just to test the waters, see see how their tires hold. But on a half-mile track, green flag stops are not prevalent. And when they do surface, they don't offer much of a gain. Uh, expect an elementary short track race, kids. Uh, cars turning left and going really fast. Nothing wrong with that. People love the short tracks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, hashtag more short tracks, I guess? I don't know. <laughs>
0: um, well, I mean, what's one thing you want to see happen? We can predict what's going to happen. We know what the, the analysis and maybe some stats show. What is one thing you would like to see happen this weekend at Richmond?
1: Hmm. I, I miss the old Denny. I, I'd like to see Denny Hamlin make a race out of this. Historically, he's dominant at Richmond. Uh, among tracks where he's made over 20 starts, it's his best based on average finish, which is 9.56. Uh, he's led over 140 laps in a single race on six occasions at Richmond. He's only won three times, though. The latest was in 2016, and across his last three starts, he led only six laps. There wasn't a race during that span in which he scored wow. a positive pass differential, so I'm not... Sure what's been happening lately, but I like to see a return to the old uh, number 11 team. Uh, the current number 11 team ranks as the sixth fastest car in the NASCAR Cup Series. That is fast, but it's not so fast that qualifying and running up front is an expectation heading into the weekend. Uh, his last win was at Texas and that was a product of Chris Gabehart jumping him 13 positions up the running order across the last three green flag stops in that race. That was the most during that span. Pivotal uh, in that win. Denny is going to have to pass much more efficiently uh, than he has in past Richmond races come Saturday night if he wants to be successful. Because, Alan, there aren't too many other workarounds if he doesn't have the fastest car. If he is able to dial it back and win and contend with Kyle Busch to say nothing of the Penske Trio... It'd mean his third victory on the year. All three would be on different track types. And that kind of versatility is interesting to me. That means it could matter well into, I don't know, a, a potential championship run. I don't think Hamlin and the 11 team as a unit are better than Kyle Bush and the 18 team. I actually don't think it's debatable at all. There are no numbers suggesting otherwise. But he could match Kyle. In terms of versatility and viability and something to, to keep the 18 car honest. He, look, Kyle Bush went through the entire 2018 season as the lone gun at Joe Gibbs racing. Does he have a little bit of competition now this year in the form of Danny Hamlin? Um, that, that's what I'm on the lookout for. Uh, what, what about you this, this weekend at Richmond? I know it's a, it's a fun race for you. You enjoy it. Is there something that you want to see?
0: Well, we've seen plenty of Team Penske. We've seen plenty of Joe Gibbs racing. That covers the Ford and Toyota fields. I want to see the Chevys up there contending, whether it be HMS, or the guys over at Ganassi, Kurt Bush, uh, been an excellent start to the year, uh, especially for being with a new team and gelling quickly with, with the, with the crew chief Matt McCall and all that stuff. But David, this really comes from Texas when we saw, uh, say Chase Elliott and Jimmy Johnson and William Byron up there contending, not, not just in the top 10, but for top five spots much much of the day. And I felt like we talked about, you know, what makes a good race in last week's episode. When there's a more diversity in terms of different teams, whether it be manufacturers or just different names up there, more people capable of going for the lead, I think that just naturally lends itself to a better race. There's more competition. So I want to see the Chevys show up on a short track, like Richmond, and put on a show and be able to contend up there with uh, the Penske's of the world, with the Kyle Busch and JGR's of the world, because it, it just makes for a better race. And I, I I don't know if we can pinpoint out some who may have potential there, but, I mean, I, I can't imagine Chase struggling too much there. Jimmy Johnson has had two good straight weeks, and then, like I said before, Kurt Busch seems to be carrying the flag for the Chevys right now, so I want to see those Chevys show up Run in the top five, contend for the lead, pass for the lead, and maybe get their first win of 2019.
1: And you didn't even mention the last Chevrolet driver to win Richmond, Kyle Larson, oh. in 2017. That was his only win outside of a two-mile track. Yeah, oh, yeah okay. and he's on a bad I, luck streak. We, <laughs> we, we've, we've seen him. We've seen him look phenomenal at Bristol, and eventually, he 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 looks like a guy that could win at Bristol, but. He already has a win at Richmond, and this is a softer, flatter, short track that should seem a little foreign to him based on his dirt racing background, seeing a lot of big, sweeping, high bank tracks. He seems to get Richmond, whereas he does not get Martinsville. Um, it's, it's hard to turn at Martinsville. It's a kind of a, a click and point and a U-turn to make a turn, but that's out of his nature. But there's something about Richmond that's that's spoken to him and you're right about his luck. He needs that to turn around. This is the second track that he's visited in 2019 that he already has a win at, uh, Fontana, Fontana was a hailstorm of activity. Didn't go his way, but this could, this could fall in his, uh, his favor. Ganassi lacked short track speed last year. They're doing it again this year. Kurt Busch significantly faster on the bigger tracks, it would be fun to see what the 42 team has in store for this weekend.
0: As long as the bow ties show up. We know Team Penske is going to be there. We know the Toyotas are going to be there. Come on, Chevy, get up there, and it's going to make for just better racing. That's all I can ask for Saturday night on Fox. Well, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, and we know you do because we have some great feedback and we love that. But if you, if you haven't done it yet, please leave us a rating or a review. It really does help the podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you have questions, we would love to answer them right here on Positive Progression. So just reach out on Twitter at Posregpog. That's P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you've been a lot of good stuff on Motorsports Analytics this week. What are you working on now?
1: Yeah, taking the week off from posting articles on Motorsports Analytics, but like we said, Xfinity Series driver stats are posted for the first time this year for Motorsports Analytics subscribers. In a week's time, I'll return to the pages of NASCAR.com. In advance of Talladega, there are a few article ideas in the works so stay tuned and keep your eyes peeled to Motorsports Analytics.
0: Sounds good David and uh, over on my side if you are listening to this on Thursday morning that means you are a subscriber so we really appreciate it uh, but make sure you watch Race Hub tonight on Thursday because I will be over at Chip Ganassi Racing with Crew Chief Matt McCall uh, and ask him what it's like to have a driver who has no shame in wrecking his own brother and promises maybe to do it sometime in the future. That's proved to be a good relationship already so make sure you watch Race Hub every night at 6 p.m. And then Friday, Saturday, keep it on FS1, on Fox. All your racing action all weekend long will be on the Fox family. And uh, that's about it. I'm still looking forward to getting back to the track when the trucks get there. Uh, Not too early May, unfortunately. But uh, keep it on Fox for all the NASCAR action. And for David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regressions. Stay positive, everyone. We'll see you next week. On Thursday morning when it posts, of course, as always, a thank you. And make sure you watch Race Hub tonight because I will be at the shop over at Ganassi with Matt McCall asking about that relationship with Kurt Bush and what it's like to have a driver who will unashamedly... Uh, oh, I gotta start that over. <laughs> is unashamedly a word? No. <laughs> I know. What? Unabashedly? Is that what I'm going for? Yeah, me. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sorry. All right. We're going to cut that. All right. I'm just going to pretend.
1: Uh, making up words okay go for it
0: i'm amira rose davis historian and co-host of the sports podcast burn it all down and now i'm hosting the new season of american prodigy all about black girls in gymnastics for the last 40 years black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way now they tell their stories you'll meet trailblazers like diane durham superstars like jordan Childs, and everyone in between Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.